Find uh, Judges chapter 4. If you are joining us tonight for the first time, I have been mentioning to the group on vacation at the beach a, a number of weeks back, a month, month or so back, and I was studying through Joshua and Judges while we were there, and uh, the message of the book of Judges just really gripped me. And so we are looking at some of the passages. We're not going to deal with every single one, but uh, the, the book of Judges ends, of course, with the, the very last verse, I think is a theme verse of America 2020, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. If there's ever been a verse that describes how people want to live today, that's it. So tonight I want to look at the subject matter, Star Wars. Okay? Star Wars. And here's why. Just, uh, just put a finger. We'll read all of chapter 4. I won't go into chapter 5 tonight, but the song of Deborah and uh, Barak is in chapter 5. And in verse 20, look at what verse 20 says. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. Even the stars were against a man who was against God. Let's uh, read verse 1 in chapter 4 and we'll continue right on through the chapter. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harashath Hagoyim, Hagoyim, I should say. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out um, Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now, Haber, the Kenite 
had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harasheth Hegoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Hereshoth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. <clears throat> but Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jalen, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say, No. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg, took a hammer in her hand, then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. That's an understatement, isn't it? A biblical <laughs> understatement. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Somebody said there's only three kinds of people in the world. Those who watch what is happening. Those who make things happen. And those who shake their heads afterwards and say, hey, what just happened? <laughs> well, today we're introduced to a woman who certainly made things happen. Now, in Deborah's time, as we've been looking at the situation of the country, what have we seen? This unfortunate spiritual merry-go-round. They sin. They suffer consequences of their sin. They are oppressed by a foreign power or king. They cry out to God. God delivers them. They have peace for a period of time, long enough that they get comfortable and complacent again, and then they go right back into sin all over again. Sound familiar? Sure it does. If you're like me, just look in the mirror. <laughs> to some degree, isn't it sort of the story of all of us? 
The people of Israel were forced to learn a principle that Jesus taught in the Gospel of John. Whoever commits sin becomes a slave of sin. Sin enslaves. What's one of Satan's greatest lies? Sin and it'll be liberated. People listen to him and they sin. Do they get liberation? No. They end up in bondage. Somebody might be living at that address tonight. You're in that bondage. You bought into that lie. And you're living testimony that sin, unrepented of, brings bondage. And it'll continue that way, and it will even get worse until you come back to the Lord. Well, Israel as a nation was a lot like a man in one of Jesus' parables. He got rid of one demon and he swept and cleaned the house. But then what did he do? He didn't put anything in his place. He, put in his place. he left the house vacant. So after the demon wandered around for a while and knew that the house was vacant, got demon friends of his, worse than he was, moved back into the house. And what did Jesus say about the state of that house? The end state was even worse than the first. Now folks, what in the world kind of parable is that? Well, you might cleanse your heart, you might repent at one point, but if you don't fill your heart with devotion to God, see, a, a human heart, compared to a house, isn't going to stay vacant. Something's going to move in. So somebody can repent of their sin, but if they don't fill their life with devotion to Jesus, they can end up worse than before even. A human heart, again, is not going to stay a, va a vacuum. And that's the state we see Israel in at a number of points in biblical history. Well, as chapter 4 opens, we see that they're in this bondage again. This time they're in bondage to a king who headed up an alliance of kings in the northern area of Israel around the Sea of Galilee. Now, under Joshua, 150 years earlier, when the people had trusted God, they had burned Hazor and killed its king, Jabin. But now another king by the same name, now, that wasn't uncommon. You see same names in the family line. A, name, a king by that same name has enslaved northern Israel again. And this king had a brilliant general by the name of Sisera. And we're told that he had 900 chariots of iron. Now, that may not sound very impressive to us today, but chapter 5, verse 8, points out that Israel didn't really have anything as far as military equipment. And so to go against an army with 900 chariots would be sort of like suicide. 
Plus, having 900 chariots of iron implies what? Implies that you've probably got a pretty sizable infantry, foot soldiers, to go along with the, the soldiers in the chariots. And so it seemed like a hopeless situation. But you know what? God's able to do the impossible. Amen? What's he do? He raises up a woman by the name of Deborah. Let's think first of all tonight, if you're taking notes, you want to write down number one, the, the woman God chose, verses one to five. We don't know much about her, but we do know that out of all of the judges, she was probably the one most consistently godly. Uh, let me just read a note in the ESV study Bible. Deborah, the fourth judge was Deborah, whose story is the first extended account in the book. While the pattern of apostasy continues, Deborah distinguishes herself as the most godly of all the judges. It is ironic that the most distinguished judge was a woman. She was a prophet and a mother in Israel, and many sought out her judicial decisions at the palm of Deborah. She instructed Barak in the conduct of the battle and led in the victory song in chapter 5 where she figures prominently. Deborah's actions and words consistently pointed to God, not away from him, in contrast to the poor choices of judges like Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. So she consistently was devoted to God. Well, other than her husband's name being given, again, we don't know much about her. But we are told that she was what? A prophetess. Now, a prophet or a prophetess would do what? speak what God told them to say. Unless they were a false prophet, in, in which case, in the book of Deuteronomy, what does Deuteronomy say that you're to do with a false prophet? Somebody who gives a prophecy, it doesn't come true. What's to be done with that person? They were to be put to death. That's how serious it was. But a true prophet would speak the word of the Lord and tell the people what God was going to do. Now, in the entire Old Testament, only three women are said to be a prophetess. There's Miriam, Moses' sister. There's Huldah, a woman who spoke for God in the time of Josiah. You can read about Huldah in 2 Kings 22. And then there's Deborah. In the New Testament, we meet some women with this gift. Anna, the, the old woman who saw the baby Jesus in the temple in Luke chapter 2, and the four daughters of Philip in Acts 21. Now, let me remind you that in the New Covenant, with a closed canon of Scripture, what's a closed canon mean? There's not a Revelation part two. There's not new books of the Bible being added. We have 66 books of the Bible, closed canon. You don't have a prophet or a prophetess in the sense of adding new revelations. 
The gift now is associated, and when you read about the gift of prophecy in the New Testament, the sense of foretelling, thus saith the Lord, and telling the people what God was saying in his word, not the sense of foretelling and giving new revelations. Uh, I do want you to understand how dangerous some groups are today with their discussions of this gift of prophet or prophetess. Because there are some groups out there today who believe that new revelations are still being given and if a prophet or a prophetess in the church stands up to speak, that revelation can even set aside the very word of God itself. Well, we're also told that Deborah was a judge in verse 4. Thank God for her contribution. And thank God for the contribution of women in the kingdom of God. But this is the only time in the Old Testament when we see that God chose a woman to lead the nation. And so Deborah stands as a very unique figure in all of Old Testament history. I think at the least that we, you know, we can say she's a woman of distinction and honor. Let's, let's think a few more things about her. She saw a need and was committed to do something about it. We see that in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 5. People were in fear. Their roads were deserted. People went out of the way routes because of the oppression against them. They would travel an unknown path or a road because a major highway, they'd run into their oppressor, the army of their oppressor, and they'd suffer harm. Well, they would come to her, to Deborah, as she sat under a palm tree, and they'd present her with their cases, and she obviously must have seen a great deal of fear in them. And everybody knew that she was a woman of, woman of God. She was very devoted to God. Folks, that, that's wonderful how that happens. When people see God at work in you and come to you, you might have that experience at work. You're known as the Christian maybe in, in the office. And people you know, might make fun of you at times, but let something happen in their family, and I bet... Your door is the one they're knocking on when they need somebody to talk to them and pray with them. Well, everybody starts going to Deborah. Uh, she was not satisfied to let this situation in the nation go on. And so she wanted to do something about it and call the people of God to do something about it and to return to the Lord. What a wonderful example of someone calling the people of God to action and calling them to God and to take action. Well, secondly, I want you to see the warrior God called. Deborah enlisted help. Look at verse 6. Israel needed military help. They needed a leader. She knew her limitations. She was a judge. But would she be respected as a military leader? Probably not, being a woman. 
there's a sad commentary here on the state of the land. Where are the men? Thank God for this woman. Thank God for all women who faithfully serve. Sometimes in a family it's that way. It's the wife, it's the mother that guides the family in spiritual matters. If it were not for her, the husband, the father wouldn't do it. And that's a shame because, guys, God's called us to be spiritual leaders in our homes and, and churches. It's sad when you look around the church and sometimes it's only the women who serve and only the women who lead. It's not what God intended. God intends men to be the spiritual leaders. Now, some object to that today, I realize, on the basis of Galatians 3.28 that says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But folks, that verse and that passage refers to salvation not to leadership. There's no stipulations coming into the body of Christ other than repentance and faith. But the New Testament goes on to present qualifications for spiritual leaders. Passages like 1 Timothy chapter 3 that calls on men to do that, to fulfill those roles. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul bases all this not on a culture at the time, but he bases it going all the way back to creation on the created order. So what's my point? My point is thank God for ladies who step in and serve, but sometimes you want to say, where's the men? I've been in church situations before. Our church has gone on mission trips before. We'd go and help a church. I remember one church in particular, I'm thinking of specifically up north, that we'd gone to help. And, and we got there, and our group was asking, where are the men? There's women and children. There were, there were very few men in the church, and the pastor said, we just don't have men. Sad. Pastor? Yes. I went to Trinidad on a mission trip, and the church was packed, and women started about 9 o'clock in the morning, and they sang until 11, and the service was started. And I think there's 70 some ladies there, and I saw 11 men. Yeah. And that included about six of us guys that were there from the United States. Yeah. They're just not there. It's just, just not, they're not there. They don't care. Yeah. And it, it's sad. It is. And there's lots of American men, not just on mission trips, but American men who were caught up with athletics or work or whatever, and they don't care anything about spiritual matters and spiritual leadership in the church. It's sad. Well, so again, she's a judge, but she probably would not have been respected as a military leader. So what does she do? She enlists the help of Pharaoh. Now, we're not told anything about him, but he must have distinguished himself in some way as a soldier. Uh, she motivates him. She encourages him. When you read verses 6 through 9, you know, God's people need encouragement. She encourages him. 
She assured him that what she was saying was the very word of God, and she assured him that God had promised victory. He agreed, but only under the condition that she would go. Now, he's been criticized for this. He should have been willing to take her at her word, what she was saying, but he wanted the added assurance that she was going to go. He must have thought, if she's God's mouthpiece, I need her to go along on this enterprise. You can understand his feelings to some degree. This arrangement, however, what does she say about this arrangement? This arrangement means, she says, that a woman would get the honor of the victory in a culture that was almost led exclusively by, by men. She's basically saying, are you willing for this to be the case? All of this says tremendous things about Deborah's faith. She was a woman of great faith. And if you want to talk about faith, read Hebrews 11 sometimes, the roll call of faith, and you'll see what's said there about the people who have faith. Faith costs us something. Faith is more than just words. Faith is to be demonstrated in actions, sometimes very costly actions. That's the kind of faith we're called to have. A faith that works. A faith that acts. We're not saved by works. We're saved by faith in Christ alone. But if it's a genuine faith, it's going to be a faith that works. A faith that acts. A faith that acts. Let me get my words out tonight. And those actions will sometimes cost us. 